0: was about as bizarre and as
1: easy as it gets
0: so the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work
1: i feel like we got top 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 i went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt 192 million dollars this is built to sell radio with your host john warlow Hey there, it's John Morillo. Listen, if you're brand new to Built to Sell Radio, welcome. It's good to have you along for the ride. We've been doing this show now for five years. I've interviewed literally a different entrepreneur every week for the past five years. And I've taken some of their best practices, their, their tips and tricks and negotiation hacks, and distilled them all into a field guide. It's a book called The Art of Selling your business. And it is a little bit of a recipe card for you to punch above your weight when it comes to negotiating with an acquirer. You can get it at builttocell.com slash selling. My next guest, Mike Malatesta, built a waste management company up. He started off driving a truck, which makes his sale for $51.5 million that much more incredible. He talks a lot about the experience of building to sell his company, and in particular, I want you to listen for the mistake he made in negotiating the sale of his business, a mistake that he estimates cost him around $4 million. We also talk about the difference between recurring and reoccurring revenue. The former made a big difference to the value of his company. Here to tell you the entire story is Mike Malatesta.
0: Mike Malatesta, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah. So you started AWS. Now, AWS is, when people hear that, they're going to think, Amazon Web Services, Mike started AWS, but it's a different AWS. Tell me what you guys did.
0: It is a different AWS, unfortunately. (laughs) Um, There's a trademark uh, lesson there somewhere, because I think we were first. (laughs) Uh, so AWS is short for advanced waste services and advanced waste services is a company that I co-founded in 1992 uh, and we started as a trucking company trucking wastewater from manufacturers plants to water treatment plants and then uh, over the years John we we started treating wastewater ourselves and then we started processing waste from all kinds of different waste from manufacturing operations and then we we grew into, um, you know, five states and we added all kinds of tangential value add services to that, to the trucking. Um, and yeah, and then we, we you know, we ultimately ended up as a $45 million or so revenue company.
1: Amazing. So if I've got a manufacturing facility and I've got dirty waste that I can't just toss in the garbage, yeah, I, hi- I hire you guys to come get rid of it for me.
0: Yeah, that's actually a good way to put it because we, we handle pretty much everything that you couldn't put in the garbage. So you know, so the trash not our thing. Everything else, our thing. Got it. It sounds like a capital-intensive business. How did you finance it? Well, uh, at the beginning, we financed it with four hundred and one k loans from our parents, uh, the little bit of money that we had. Uh, and we also uh, were fortunate enough to get uh, a bank loan, um, largely because we did have capital. You know, we had we were buying trucks and equipment that, if the thing, f- you know, failed, they could turn around and, and and easily sell. So that's how we got it off the ground initially. It was just a uh, hundred thousand or so in equity from me and my partners, and then uh, two fifty or two hundred from from a bank.
1: And how did you guys split up the equity with the partners? Was it just sort of a 50-50 deal down the middle or did you base it on how much equity you put in, uh, how much cash you put into it? How did you structure that?
0: It was, So it, 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 um, initially, it was the amount of capital that we put in. So it was a straight sort of thing. I'm not sure that was the best move or not, but that's how we did it. Um, and over time, we had a few structural changes in our partnership that we can you know go into or not go into so the relative percentages changed over time but from from a from a um, we we basically went from the money you put in and then near the, when I when I last bought, bought out my partners we were equal partners
1: got it got it got it that's helpful and so you built this business up you started in 92 is that right
0: yes november And,
1: and you sold in 2015 that's right yeah And you were 45 million when you sold? What was the top line?
0: Yeah, around 45. And how many employees? 150. Man.
1: That sounds like a lot of people to manage.
0: (laughs) It gets easier as you get bigger.
1: Oh, yeah? In what way?
0: Well, lots of ways. I mean, you know, it's... uh, Well, if you want it to get easier, it gets easier. I should say that. So um, it gets easier as you get bigger because you have... Uh, a lot more people that are worrying about things that you as a founder or CEO would normally be worrying about on a smaller uh, at a smaller level you also have people that are creative and bring you know great ideas that you never thought of and those you know help improve the business they improve the process of the business which is a huge thing uh, How know, did you so,
1: evolve as a leader? Ninety-two to twenty-fifteen—it's a long stretch. Yeah. Started the business from scratch to one hundred and fifty employees. I'd imagine you evolved a lot. Like, what was what was what was the, the evolution of Mike as a boss?
0: Yeah, slow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, you know I, I guess I I've, so I feel like I had some natural leadership tendencies, but um like a lot of people that have natural leadership tendencies, they also have control um uh, tendencies. And I had control tendencies, not overtly like do it my way or you know, but um not overtly. So it's kind of like you create a system this I created a system where, you know, ultimately everything came up to me because I wanted to make sure that the decision we make is the right decision um and that got me so far um really got me to about 10 years through about the first 10 years John and then
1: give me top line revenue in in, in 10 years like where, where how did that form of management get you to what did that yeah 10
0: get you? 10 million yeah okay. um and so at that point uh I was I had basically created a, a monster that I didn't like um and you know I was I was I call it being in, you know, like hitting a wall and being in a, a dropping into a valley of uncertainty. So here I was, um, you know, 10 years along, having, you know, employed this leadership strategy that seemed to work, but it was no longer making me happy. And and as, if I'm not happy, the business probably isn't doing as well as it could be doing. And so it took a little bit of a journey for me after that to to, one, to understand why I had created where I was, like I was blaming it in my mind on other things and other people, but it was really about me. I mean, it all happened because I asked it to happen that way. Um, So getting clear about that and then, you know, figuring out what are the resources that I need to avail myself to, because I had been a very insular person too, John. I mean, it was a hundred percent on the business, in the business every day. I didn't, you know, I was one of those people who are like, oh, I, I don't have time to go to to that, I mean, I felt like people who were out at networking events and stuff were just lazy, you know, they just weren't focused enough on their business. It was crazy. So, um, yeah, so then I uh, took, a, took a little bit of a journey, and then I started, to, I started to, first of all, I started to really think about what I wanted, and then I had to find help. I had to go outside for for the first time in a long time and, and ask for help, find help and learn from other people
1: and where did you go next where, where did you find that help
0: well the first thing i did was i joined a uh a round table group at the the um you know the city's chamber of commerce which was very helpful and it's like a you know it's like a forum and you know from i know we'll talk about eo and some other things but it's like a forum but not it's very loose but it was my first sort of thing and I was around people from different industries, you know, CEOs or presidents or entrepreneurs, whatever. Um, so that was the first thing and that got me sort of started. At least it got, I took the first step and then um, I realized that there were limitations to this. This was not going to get me where I wanted to be. So the next thing I did was I joined uh, Strategic Coach and uh, Strategic Coach is a wonderful, wonderful program for entrepreneurs that, um, I think saved my, my entrepreneurial life really, um, taught me so many things, um, exposed me to so many ideas, gave me the confidence that what I was feeling wasn't, wasn't, uh, it wasn't a sentence, you know, it was just a phase. And if I wanted to get past the phase, I could do it. So strategic coach taught me a lot about how to do that. Um, and then I joined, uh, it's called Vistage now, in, in in Wisconsin at the time it was called Tech. But and Vistage is a is a another wonderful program for business leaders um, that that really teaches you strategic and tactical things about business that I you know most of which I had not ever been exposed to. And then finally, I joined YPO,
1: Young Presidents Organization. Young so you President got lots here. of. Lots of outside input from other entrepreneurs, it sounds like. And- right,
0: right. Because every time I took one step, I realized that there was something about that step that wasn't getting me all the way to where I wanted to be. And so everything that I layered in on top of that was to fill uh, what I perceived to be a need that I wasn't having filled from the others. But I didn't stop one and start the other. I did them together because they were all benefiting me in some significant way i thought
1: you mentioned the um the conversation around partners it's funny partners has been on my mind lately i just did an interview with a guy named greg alexander who built a company and it was in the soft is in the uh, consulting space and he, in his mind, this consulting company is to trade around one, 1.2 times revenue. So in the early days, it was just him and, and and he hired a couple of employees and in part to make them feel like they were his partners and like he had sort of, you know, friends along the way, he gave equity to these people. And okay. it was a very early in the in the process. And again, he thought his business was trading at one times revenue. And Long story short, he builds the company with $30 million in revenue when he gets an offer of $162 million for a $30 million company. And he realizes he has made an $80 million mistake Ah, because he has given two employees who were great employees, but not $80 million employees, (laughs) a huge chunk of the company. You alluded to the idea of, of your uh, partners and how that ownership change structured. What's the story there?
0: Well, um, so the first structured change we had was one of my partners um was working in um uh, for another company in in the trash business and they um they essentially made it he, he had an important position there. They made a divestiture and he for some reason you know, did a very kind thing, and he took a part of the divestiture, and he and he basically made it uh, an asset of our company. And so, at that time, uh, in exchange for that, we all got basically more than what we had put into the company in the beginning. So it was really a recapitalization, uh, and it leveled out our playing field from a from a percentage basis. Who's, who's, who's our, Oh, sorry. So me and three partners. Okay. Uh, the, so the original partners yeah. and then, um, so that, that did, that did that. And then, um, one, of, one of my partners passed away in 2003. Uh, and, that caused another reshuffling because the company took in the uh, share his shares as treasury, and um, so that that made the remaining three of us thirty uh, three percent, um, roughly, shareholders. So that's kind of the dynamic of how that transpired.
1: Wow, what was what was it like to lose a partner? Was was that expected or was it a sudden event? Or yeah, what
0: was what was what was the backstory well, there? Yeah, in a word, it was horrible. Um, I imagine. So uh, his name was Butch, and he was really it was he and I that ran, that you know started the business. The other two folks, Larry and Chuck, came in as investors. Um, and interestingly, we had never considered partners, uh, you know, when we first put our business plan together and stuff. Besides the two of us, because we kind of thought we had it all figured out, and. When we went to get the bank loan, they said, Yes, we'll give you the bank loan, but you have to you have to have twenty five thousand more in equity and we just didn't have it. So that's so Chuck and Chuck and, and Larry, the two guys came in, um, you know, basically allowed us to start the company, but it wasn't something that we had planned at all, and I didn't we didn't know them very well uh either. Um but um getting back to Butch, so it was horrible because Butch Butch died as a result of a fire in one of our plants so he was working on something it caught on fire a tank it caught on fire and he was inside of the tank and um you know it just it just it just uh you know burned him very very badly so he lived for three days and uh after that and then and then passed away so it was the worst kind of partnership transition that you could imagine having um not just you know losing a phenomenal man and a phenomenal partner um but the family you know dealing with the family uh issues related to that all the buy sell stuff um you know all the osha i mean everything about it was just horrible and unfortunate imagine. you
1: know I, I i hear about the um, you know exit planners talk about uh the four d's and 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 i, I it's so in many cases, esoteric. It's sort of this theory, but you lived it, like big time, real. Right.
0: Yeah. It's like, I mean, they say about insurance, right? It's like the, 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 the thing you you buy and hope you'll never need, right? You never think you're gonna need it. Well, um, we didn't think any differently than anyone else. We were, they made us get it, you know, and we put a buy sell together, and we had to have it, so so we had it. Um, and never thought we'd need it and then one day you know we we needed it uh, unfortunately
1: how does that work because his butch's shares when he passed would have presumably transferred to his next of kin is that how it works or did you have that agreement such that you the insurance yeah. paid
0: so we um we had a funding mechanism for it what does that mean a funding mechanism well, Keyman Life Insurance Policy. Okay. So we, from the beginning when we drew it up, John, we did not want, none of us wanted to partner with one of our wives or Got someone it. else. It just didn't feel like that would be right for anybody. So um, so we made sure that we had we had it funded and we always had the, the right to purchase the shares. They would not transfer to um, a family member or something unless... You know, unless we couldn't, we couldn't pay.
1: So, if I understand this correctly, you have an insurance policy that, in the event of one of the death of uh, one of the owners, it it triggers. So there's a payment that pays for his shares, effectively.
0: Yeah. Well, it pays for the yes. You hope it. You know, you 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 start at you. You basically set the insurance level where you think the payment is going to need to be or over, and then you hope. Uh, that as the business grows you remember that <laughs> and you keep adjusting to it because obviously obviously right you yourself in a squeeze if if uh if you're underfunded
1: right and so how did you value the business for that for that purpose
0: we had a formula in the buy sell and i don't remember exactly what it was but it was a simple formula that um you know maybe it netted out assets and added a multiple to it similar to the way you'd you know, sell a business, not that you'd sell it by netting out assets, but you know, same basic concept. And that's, that's what we did. Okay. And did it
1: turn out you had enough money to fund it? We did. Oh, great. Yeah. Great. Okay. So was that the ownership structure after that catastrophic event? Was there other changes to the ownership or did you just ride it through you and the the two other partners along the way?
0: There were uh, in 2013. Uh, I was able to to um, buy out my remaining two partners through um, through a combination of um, uh, money that that I could borrow and uh, a note that they would that they would take. So um, yeah, so that happened in 2013, and after that, um, I I had. Well, we had a one percent shareholder, someone that we had given st- uh, some shares to, um, sort of like what you were talking about before. We, you know, with that earlier story, but not anything, Greg, yeah. not anything like that from a number standpoint. And then after I after um, I bought out my partners, I invited two uh, long time uh, 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 team members who had been very instrumental in the business to um, to buy in. Um, because I'd wanted that for a long time, John, but we just, with our structure, it just wasn't something that made sense until... Well,
1: what was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, with your two other partners? Like, what triggered you to want to buy them out?
0: Uh, they did. So, um, so they they were both um, 15 years older than me, give or take. Uh, and we'd, we'd had a long run, 20, 20 years together, Um starting with partners you, you know with barely knew who barely knew each other, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderfully long ride together. and we did really well together. Um, but there came a time um, when they wanted to, you know, get their get their investment back. and um, they they approached me about it and we had, you know we had that buy sell uh, still but the number that the buy sell um, uh, you know indicated the formula was I just couldn't pay that much I just couldn't I couldn't borrow that much I couldn't, and they both wanted to go get, get out at the same time and so to their credit we um, we negotiated sort of a side deal off of the off of the buy sell that that worked for for all three of us and that's how we were able to get that done
1: got it because your business had grown substantially like where were you in 2013 as it relates to revenue number employees that kind of stuff
0: um, we were probably in the 40 million range and,
1: and did you have a sense of what it was worth at that point like the, the company
0: um well sure I mean we we had a sense of what it was worth but we didn't have an offer you know we didn't have an offer yeah
1: what did you uh, think it was worth ballpark
0: um, I mean, I thought it was worth 15 or 20, probably 20. Okay.
1: Okay. And so that would have meant that you would have had to cut a huge check to your partners.
0: Right. That's
1: right. And so what do you think, if I'm one of the partners, I'm like, Hey, I took the risk like you, <laughs> why did I get to like bear the, br- how did, how did you have that conversation? Was like, what was that like to to have that conversation that effectively meant that they were going to take less than the, quote unquote, market value of what their shares were worth, if that makes sense?
0: Yeah. Well, again, uh, I'll, I give them a lot of credit. Um, they... Um, mm. uh, it, you know, it wasn't. It wasn't like I said. Well, you know, I can only pay this much, and they were like, "Okay, well, that, that's all you can do. That's all you can do." But, but we were we we kept talking. We were open to conversation, and we had had a lot of trust built up between one another for a long time. And, um, you know, I, I I think they recognized um, the reality that I couldn't come up with that money. I mean, they know the they know the finances. They know the availability. Um, so I think they were, they, they were able to reconcile that, um, to themselves and, and the fact that it was they who wanted to leave, they could have stayed, um, could they have forced you to sell the company? Yeah, they, I mean, yeah, could have, yeah. Um, but they never did. I mean, they never, they, I have to, they, they, um, they treated me like I will, for the most part, they treated me um with what I would call tremendous respect and regard for having um you know been instrumental in in um in getting the company to where it is and not being possessive about it from a you know, strictly from a share standpoint, which I which was their right. They could have done that. A lot of people would have done that, um, but they um they did not. Mm.
1: You know, I'm putting words in in Greg, the guy I referenced earlier's mouth, but I I got the sense that there may have been a a, a pinch of uh, what's the word um, resentment, maybe that he had given this equity and it was his error. He admitted it, but but at the end of the day, he felt that it it maybe like he'd done a lot of the work to get the business to where it was. Did was that something you experienced at all that sense of resentment? Like you guys kicked in a bit of cash when we were a tiny business and yet here it has blossomed. I've done all the work. I've been, you know, sweating it. Did you feel any of that sort of, I don't know, resent- I can't think of a better word than resentment towards your shareholders who had benefited maybe disproportionately to then, Is that- am I making any sense? Yeah.
0: you're. Yeah. You're making a lot of sense. And I, 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 I don't think I'd be human if I hadn't thought that from time to time, John. Um, but I never got fixated on it because there's the opposite story to that story, and that is, well, if these guys hadn't come along, you, you wouldn't have what what you have, and you wouldn't have been able to do what you've been able to do, and all of those things. So I think um, it's I definitely ha- did. I have those thoughts. Definitely did I stay wallowed in those thoughts for long? No. Um, because I was always able to kick my own ass and say, here's, (laughs) here's the reality. And one thing I've learned over years and years and years for me, if I've made a deal with somebody, I made it with the, with the best knowledge I had and that, and thinking that it would make me happy and everybody else. So I didn't, I don't look back at those things and go, wow, what if, or kick myself over paying someone more than I thought they were worth. If that, if that was the deal, yeah, does it sting? Yeah, it stings a little bit, but that's the deal. So um so yeah, that's how I that's how I process it.
1: Got it. So you in any event, build the business up beyond 2013. You've got a couple of, of key managers now who are now shareholders as well, it sounds like.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm
1: what triggered you to want to sell in 2015
0: a visit so i um around thanksgiving i got um uh, i got a um an email from a company that we did some business with not a lot but some uh and uh, you know it was one of those like it was from a salesperson like hey mike um you know our The guy who runs our division is coming in um coming into town i was wondering if we could you know get some lunch together and um so i said sure because i thought it was going to be one of those um you know thanks for doing business with us hey can we do more business what more business you know just a regular sort of
1: so he's a salesman from what company what what is he selling you
0: oh so it was sorry a salesperson from uh, a company called covanta that we did business with so she, uh, was our account rep.
1: Okay. And what business did you do with Covanta? Like what do they do and what did, what was the nature of the business you guys did together?
0: Yeah. So Covanta run, they operate, their primary business is operating, um, plants that burn trash to, uh, create electricity or steam. Cool. So
1: they take garbage, they burn it and it makes electricity. And some of the garbage that you had, they thought could, they could burn and make more electricity. Is that, was that the idea?
0: Yeah. Um, so yes, so the the, the, the what we had wasn't garbage, it was industrial waste. And why they liked industrial waste is because they could charge more for it than they could charge for garbage. So it was a way to prop up margins. Um, and it all went through the same process that the garbage went through. So assuming it doesn't mess up the process, it's an easy way to juice uh, a return, better get a better return. Um, So that's the business that we were doing with them at the time.
1: Got it. So they would buy the industrial waste from you and they would then turn it into electricity. Is that the... Uh,
0: We pay them uh, like four times what they would be paid for garbage. Uh, So yeah. So that's what I mean. It was...
1: Ah, so you paid them.
0: We paid them, right. Right. You paid them to take the
1: stuff off your hands.
0: Yeah, we pay them um, that because we're we uh, it's a, sort of a growing trend for especially for larger companies to want their waste to be destroyed rather than landfilled. So they're willing to pay more for destruction, uh, and that's so they're willing to pay more. And Covanta had the the destruction facilities, John, and so it was you know it was a natural thing for us to approach them and say, hey, we have this material. They want it destroyed, you know, and then pay what they what they wanted for it. Got it. And so
1: the sales rep calls you up, says, hey, Mike, can we get a lunch? My division manager is coming to town. Where does it go from there?
0: Yeah, so at, at the lunch, um, instead of talking about, you know, how we can do more business together and that, you know, chit-chatty stuff, um, he said to me that, uh, you know, they were thinking about getting into um, the industrial waste side of the business to be closer to the actual customer. Um, and they had already purchased one company in another part of the country and they were looking to build out something in, in the Midwest. And so that's where the conversation started, John. What was your reaction to that? I, it took me by surprise uh, for a number of reasons. One, um, you know it was completely different from what i thought the conversation would be like and i was i thought it was you know it wasn't like a private conversation you know we had like four or five people around um so that was one one part of it and the second was i would not have seen that coming i like it never occurred to me that that company would have an interest in doing what he was telling me they had an interest in doing um
1: and so once you realized it was a conversation they were having about acquiring your business. Yeah, What emotions went through your mind at that
0: point? Uh, well, f- for a while, uh, like a few weeks or something, I just let it go. I was just like, man, I don't, don't really see this. And I didn't, you know, it, it, it wasn't it, at the time, um, it wasn't a company that, you know, we were sort of, Friendly, we we were sort of competitors and also customers of one another, right? Which is common in a lot of businesses. It's common in the waste business. Common in a lot of businesses. But it wasn't like I was like, oh, that's the that's the company that's doing such a great job. I want to follow that and be part of that. It wasn't like that. So I just kind of let it ride for a few weeks, and then um, over the Christmas break, I. I went to, my wife and I went to dinner, like a birthday party dinner at a friend's house. And they were, we were the, but we were about 10 years younger than all the other couples that were there. And, you know, three or four of them had sold businesses at some point and they all seemed really happy. <laughs> like they they just seemed happy. Like not a care in the world, you know. And so I came away from that dinner, and I was thinking to myself, "Well, maybe, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I should spend a little more time on it." And so I did, and I, um, you know, I started running some numbers and started saying to myself, "Okay, well, what? Where do I have? You know, you know, kind of stuff you do. Where do you have to be where, um, you know, it makes sense." And so I, um, yeah, I got there and my wife and I were like, yeah, if we can get this, this makes, this makes sense for us.
1: What's the calculation you're doing in your head, Mike?
0: A uh, lifetime of, you know, if I don't want to do anything else, uh, and can I live the way that I live now and not have to worry about anything? Was that, it was pretty much that simple. And then it just put numbers to that, John, um, and so yeah that, so then I reengaged and I had some more conversations with them and um So where did you, before we get into those conversations
1: so how did you re uh initiate so after the christmas dinner and all these happy entrepreneurs you're like maybe they maybe they know something yeah, i don't right. so how did you how did you reengage with the division head from uh from Kivanta?
0: Yeah so i just i just called him and and i said you know hey i've been thinking about it because i hadn't i hadn't had any interaction with him after the 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 lunch and he gave me space you know um obviously because i hadn't heard from him either and so i said you know i've been thinking about it and and you know maybe maybe there's something that can be done here um you know what's what's i mean i knew what the next step was but i asked you know what's the next step you want to take and you know sign the nda and provide some numbers. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's what, that's what I did, John. And then, um, at the same time, I, I approached another, um, uh, what I thought would be a potential acquirer that had tried to acquire us earlier. And, um, and I said, look, you know, um, there, there might be an opportunity now, um, cause we have been approached by, by another company. Time might be right. Are you guys interested? in? so I kind of created my own parallel process, um, which, you know, probably, I don't think that's the right thing for everybody to do. Um, not, not without some help, but I had been through investment banking processes before and, you know, I, like, you know, like everybody, you know, I was like, oh, I can do that. Just do it myself. Right. So I basically created my own. You're a control freak
1: still. You never got that yeah. out of your system, apparently.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I created my own investment banking process between these two, um, these two firms. And, um, you know, ultimately the, the you know, one, one of the, um, one of the offers was, was, you know, significantly better than than the other. Um I'm not sure which party was right, but one was one was significantly better than the other and that On a percentage
1: the, basis, Mike, what was the difference in offers?
0: Um yeah, that's a good question. I'd say it was probably 25%. It was big. It's a big number. Hmm. Um so um so yeah, so after I went through that process, uh, then um, you know I made a decision to to move forward with a letter of intent um, with Covanta, the company that ended up acquiring us.
1: And and what was your reaction to the letter of intent when you saw it, and you you saw the the kind of financial terms that they were they were prepared to offer?
0: Well, I remember uh, I. I showed it to my CFO who had become a shareholder after my original partners. Mm -hmm. So I brought her into my office and I just gave it to her. And uh, her eyes got really wide. She's like, she looks at me and she's like, you have to take this. I was like, yeah, that's what I was thinking. But I wanted you to look at it and see if I was thinking the right thing. What was the Um, offer? uh, Well, it it started out um, about, 55 million dollars or so. And um that yeah, was a big number, John. What does that feel like
1: to I mean, you started a business in 1992. Yeah. I was and driving you could, trucks. You're driving a truck. Yeah. And suddenly someone's put a piece of paper in front of you saying that they want to buy your business for 55 million dollars. What like what's that
0: feel like? well it doesn't feel bad i can tell you that i don't know if i can tell you exactly what it feels like but it doesn't feel bad um it 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 felt good i mean felt felt like um you know all the stuff that you work on can pay off you know that you know it, it can happen um but of course a letter of intent is just a non-binding number john there's the you know there's a lot to there's a lot to do between that and actually you know closing on a on a on a sale um, but i'd also you know by that time i i bought or been in the process or, or involved in the process of buying you know 12 13 companies so i you know never as the seller, always as the buyer, but I, you know, I had a pretty good idea of, you know, how these things work and what you can expect and, and how it makes someone feel. I mean, the, the, the people that we bought, you know, that they felt good about, you know, being able to monetize what had been just an imagined, uh, outcome, you know, cause it's just imaginary until someone puts a, number in front of you or what
1: multiple of earnings did the 55 million represent
0: it was about 8.2 or three i think
1: got it got it and i'm assuming that the 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 acquire was using earnings as the primary driver of value right they were that, that was
0: yeah, what they, they, were they, to- they were using ebitda mm-hmm. uh, so i assume most of your listeners know what that is yeah
1: uh, I would think so. Earnings before interest, tax,
0: depreciation, amortization. I'm trying to remember
1: it off the top of my head, yeah. but yes. Uh, even up. Well
0: done. Yeah. You got it. Um, yeah. So that's you know that, that people talk about discounted cash flow and these other ways, but most of the transactions that I've been involved with, either as an investor or uh, or a seller, have been you know EBITDA based with maybe a little bit of like how much capital does it take to keep this business going every year. Um, but that's that's essentially but was the, that's what was used as the primary way to uh, value it
1: and i'm assuming it was on a like a what do they say It's like a debt free cash free basis meaning yeah you had to clear off any debt on the business with the proceeds is that how that or or in advance of basically transacting
0: yeah uh huh that is that is how it worked yeah so you got to pay off everything you owe people um, well and in debt at least um and then you have a you know working capital adjustment to to handle the sort of payable receivable mix uh keep the business going um and yeah and then you keep whatever excess cash there is right excess of the working capital need if there is any
1: <laughs> the other offer was 25 percent lower Were you able to create a bit of a bidding war at all? Did you get them to kind of nudge up at all? Or was it sort of, how did did that work?
0: No, they came up, but it's just, you know, they just couldn't come up. They, they, They just couldn't come up with, I shouldn't say they couldn't, they didn't want to come up to the level that, you know, the other offer was, even though they didn't know what the other offer was, they didn't want to come up. You know, past the point where they stopped, so I think they came up twice, John. Um, wow! But you know, it' was still it wasn't close. Um, there were other considerations, um, not to say that money wasn't, a maybe the largest consideration, but um, the other consideration was that the the company that had the lower offer also had, you know, an established um, infrastructure for the type of business that we are. So you know there's clearly going to be job reductions and you know synergies and all that other stuff if i went with them where uh, with covanta the company was going to be what they called a platform company so they were basically going to rely upon the management and the infrastructure and the people that we had to you know because they didn't have people doing those kinds of things so it was a it was a it was a good opportunity to keep everyone employed And a good opportunity, I thought, to accelerate the advancement potential for some of the key players who, who, you know, could advance at a much slower level if they, you know, stayed with us doing what we were doing. Got it. Was it a
1: bidding war where you you know, A comes up, B goes up, or was Covanta's offer first and final at 55? And then, you know, the other person you you nudged up twice, or was it back and forth, back and forth along the way?
0: Uh, I don't think, I don't think we went back and forth with Covanta until after I signed the letter of intent. Um, Before uh, I was just using them as sort of the high watermark. Got it.
1: Got it. And I mean, I'd be curious to know how you nudge the other side. I mean, it sounds like you did not say, look, I've got an offer of X from Y. It was, you alluded to the offer. What I'd be curious to know what you did and what advice you might you might uh, provide to other entrepreneurs who want to create that bidding war, but also don't want to overplay their hand and come off like a kind of a, a dick in the process, and so to speak. Right.
0: Yeah. That's a, I'm glad you brought that up because, um, I, I definitely didn't do that. I mean, I, I knew these people a little bit because of, you know, my past experience with them. I respected them and what they had built. They'd done a great job. Um, so, you know, I wasn't going to be the person who told them what to do. Um, instead I just, you know, I, I just, I think I just was very respectful in the process. And I said, look guys, you know, um, because ultimately, they're looking at, you know, the construction of the EBITDA and the company one way, and the other company is looking at it the other way. Um, so my the only thing that I could really do was was talk to them about why I thought the way that they were looking at it, like assuming they were using the same multiple, which they probably were, you know, they were just looking at the, the EBITDA differently. And so I said, well, you know, and I would always say, well, I... I I mean this isn't verbatim of course but I would I would I would say you know I can appreciate you looking at it this way the other companies looking at it a different way and I think you should at least consider you know this this or or this so I just did my best to sort of move them up in retrospect you know I could have like I said I was sort of playing investment bank I could have hired an investment bank to do this and maybe they would have been more successful um, You know engaging others um and also you know getting this this second um, option to move up um, more aggressively but um but i didn't do that and i don't regret not doing it even though the investment bankers can bring a lot of value to to the sale of a company especially if you if you aren't you know well versed in these things to, like in your
1: case, though, you'd done it a dozen yeah, times. Yeah, I felt like I was well versed,
0: yeah. but you know, I, I was probably, you know, over. I probably wasn't as well versed as I was convincing myself I was. But, may, um, sorry, Mike. But I also didn't want to process. I didn't want to be out on the street with books, you know, in front of 100 people asking them to bid on the, the business. That just wasn't what I wanted to do. You mentioned
1: looking at the EBITDA and interpreting it through a different lens or, or thinking it sounds like you thought of the EBITDA as somewhat subjective. Like it was a creative project as opposed to a black and white, like this is the EBITDA of the company. What do you mean by they were looking at the EBITDA differently? Like, isn't the EBITDA just the EBITDA? Uh,
0: The EBITDA is the EBITDA, but the construction of it can be different and, and looked at differently. So for example, we had a large portion of our, um, EBITDA was recurring revenue based, which of course most acquirers love recurring revenue. So we had a lot of that, a lot of recurring revenue, a lot of recurring revenue or recurring uh, EBITDA. But we also had uh, a, a project component to our business. So that project component could be episodic. So sometimes, you know, we'd have a big project. Sometimes we wouldn't have a big project. You're betting basically, um, you know, our our history had said that we will continue to have these big projects, but they're not booked. They're not even <clears throat> jobs right now. They haven't happened yet. And so I think there's a you know, you can get hung up on what's the val is the value of an episodic uh revenue or EBITDA dollar the same as the value of a recurring revenue? And and ultimately, um you know, the one, the one company said, you know, acquire said, well, we think, <clears throat> we think it's closer to one-to-one than the other, I guess. And so that's, and again, I'm not in their internal meetings, so I don't know. This is s- some speculation on my point part, but I've done enough of these things since then and, and after then, since, or before then and after then that I, I'm sure that was I mean, I would have been asking those questions if I was on the acquiring side.
1: What proportion of your revenue was recurring?
0: Um, so about, in a given year, about five or six million would be non-recurring or, you know, recurring, but not the same, I guess. So um, we seem to get it all the time, but it didn't come from the same spaces. So technically yeah. non-recurring.
1: I guess, I guess I think of the difference as reoccurring. Mm-hmm. As yes. in, like a rash that you keep getting, but you don't know when you're going to get it, versus yeah. recurring being, you know, subscription based or predictable recurring. So, yeah. so that's a good way to
0: look at it. I, I, I hadn't heard that before, but I like that. Yeah, recurring versus reoccurring. Yes.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like you had about five or six million of reoccurring revenue, and the that's rest
0: right. was recurring. Right.
1: Wow. Big proportion.
0: Yeah. Well, that's a. I mean, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm. I'm, I'm a smokestack kind of guy. You know, that's how I grew up. That's the business that I grew up in. Um, you know, the way that our business worked is recurring revenue, you know, covers all the overhead, makes you know, keeps everybody employed, make sure you got cash in the bank and all that. And the other, you know, juice really is the one that produces the majority. It's like a waterfall and, and, um, and that's how we. That's how we. Of course, when we first started the business, we didn't understand that. But as we came to 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 be better business people, began to understand how that would work. And so um, that was that was our our model really for doing it.
1: Got it. that's for sure helpful. I want to kind of get underneath something because I looked at the Covanta press release and it 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 you know it released the sale price is fifty point five. And you mentioned the LOI, and I think you alluded to this—that there was some drop-off between the LOI and the final. Yeah, yeah. So the LOI was at fifty-five. So what happened?
0: Yeah. So, I, Scott. So this is where an investment banker would probably have been helpful. Um, I so the the number ended up being fifty-one-five. John, I think I was. I, th- I think that's Got the it. number. Okay, fifty. Okay. So there's so there's a four million dollar gap. Um, so what happened was we we had a 90 day um, due diligence period and during that 90 day period they, they 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 their team started to really digging in on the reoccurring versus recurring. Um, and uh, and ultimately, I think I made a mistake um, because, I, you know I, st- I still had these notes to my partners and the w- notes being uh, loans death, Lo- loan, right. okay yeah. yeah right so so I owed them money um, because of the the buyout and um, the way that our agreement was written was that if I were to if I were if I still owed them money, and sold the business, there would be a step up.
1: What does that mean to step up?
0: Step up. So, you know, the value that I paid them for their shares would go up if I sold the business for more than the, um, you know, our agreement. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, um, So in order for me to move forward with this and avoid a step up, and fulfill my obligation to them, I, have, I would have to pay them in full before I could close. And so um, where I think I made a mistake, and, you know, it, relatively speaking, um, was letting, you know, I let um, the acquirer know that I had to do this. And because it was a big deal for me, I had to, it, there was a lot that went into doing that. Like a lot of risk, and um, as because I think about, if they about,
1: hadn't closed on the transaction, you would have paid out the stepped-up fee, but then be out the cash and no transaction. That's right. That was the risk you were looking at.
0: Yeah, right. I was yeah. like a risk. It was like back to a startup sort of risk, you know, because um, it wasn't it wasn't an insignificant amount. But um, but anyway. So I think I made a mistake by letting them know that. And then they started to to um, you know, get more aggressive about wanting to walk back uh, some of the value on the reoccurring part of the business. Um, and so they came back with a, with a different number. And I was really mad at myself, John, because I, th- I felt like I walked into a trap. Now, I don't know that they even had that conversation. So that's why I, you know, I I got past it quickly because why you know I could spend my whole life trying to think about that, um, but in the end, um, you know, since the number that they that they had offered me first was higher than the number that I wrote on the piece of paper, you know, in the beginning, I I said to myself, well, you know, yeah, it's yeah, I don't want to take, I, you know, I don't want to walk back like this, but they're not like totally wrong with what they're saying and it's still good you know it's still good for me and so you know i took it well thanks for sharing that and it's
1: you know not uncommon we hear about retrading and uh, all the time so it's very it's very common the um i i want to make sure i understand for our listeners especially so they can kind of understand the mistake that you feel like you might've made in revealing that information about the, the, the step up and the, the need to pay back your, so in what way did that, did that undermine your negotiating leverage? Like what, why did that make you weak? Maybe I just need to understand the mechanics of how that would work. If you had agreed to the sale, you would have had to pay them back. But you would have had the money from the sale to pay them back. So, why? What was that? Maybe I just need to understand the risk better.
0: Yeah. So, the risk was in the timing. So, if I, you know, essentially we had this, we had a valuation established with my partners and it was at X level. Yeah. And, And so this offer was at Y level. So, if, 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 if I, if I still owed them money under the note, um, when, when I sold it at y level, their level would step up to y level. and so the, the, the proceeds that that I would get would be you know re, they, they would be significantly reduced. So it was important to without, so so it was important for me to be like live up to my obligation to that to them to what we agreed to. but to do that I had to do it without the certainty of a close because there, that was the way it had to be. If that makes sense
1: the way that the agreement was written it was prior to receiving the That's, money that you would have to
0: yeah pay not them prior back. to right not prior to an agreement to do it or anything like that prior to a close
1: yeah uh, okay so let's just i'll put round numbers on it so you for sake of argument let's just make it fun and say you owed them $100 and you stood to gain 150 from the sale but the idea was that you had to write a check for a hundred dollars in advance of receiving the 150. Yes. If that's a, I probably butchered I probably
0: made it much less. I think that's, 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 that's clear enough. It paints
1: a picture. (laughs) It's probably butchered it, but I get the idea. So it was the, the risk was in the timing and having to basically pay the money in advance of receiving the consummated clothes sale.
0: Right. And then, and, and me tipping my hat of that fact Mm-hmm. um no, I, th- have you I, read-
1: I think i read played into it sorry you think you might have played into it
0: i think played into their decision to walk back on the on the number because you know it wasn't it, it was you know it i shouldn't have yeah i probably i probably shouldn't have i probably should have had i probably shouldn't have said what i said um but, you know, like I said before, there's, I get over that quick. It's just a thing. Yeah. And
1: have you read Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Difference?
0: Yeah. So, yeah. I wish I was using labeling and mirroring and all the other <laughs> techniques because I would have <laughs> done better. Yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like you did just fine.
1: It sounds like you just yeah. did, you did very, like, just, but I, I remind, it reminds me of in that book, he talks about, um, He's, I can't remember, but I'm going to put it, but it's basically he who talks the most loses, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, he's talking about the, the, the value of each morsel of information. And it sounds like in your case, that slipping, that, that bit of information might've given them a bit of leverage.
0: Yeah, I definitely didn't do it the way Chris would have done it. I'm quite sure of that. <laughs>
1: That's a, it's a fun book for sure. Uh, and and great stories because it's like fbi terrorist type stories like they're you know like they're 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 all very very dramatic and you know interesting well, context
0: and so forth. i think he says in there right you can't meet in the middle on a human being <laughs> or something <laughs> like that right it's
1: so true like it's this so whole true.
0: meet in the middle stuff is just ridiculous you can't meet in the middle on a human being yeah it's oh yeah so true. It makes sense
1: man i mean Did you buy yourself a trophy? Tell me you bought yourself a trophy. You bought yourself a beach house or a fancy car. Did you do anything to celebrate?
0: Uh, man, I'm going to sound boring here for a little while. Um, I did. So the the only thing I did that summer was I bought, uh, so this happened in May that summer. I bought a Corvette. Um, and then besides that, John, I didn't do anything for like two years, um, Except you know, get the money with an investment advisor. By the way, here's a funny story. So, I didn't have my investment account set like I was doing Schwab myself. You know, I didn't have like a money advisor or anything. So, um, this is really dumb. But I, I, uh, so I didn't have anything set up to receive the money except my checking account. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so all of a sudden, there's this, there's a, you know, this is a decent. Chunk 50 of million
1: bucks in your checking
0: account. <laughs> yeah. Right. So 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 um if you wanna if you wanna knock a banker off his seat, call him and say, you know, I, I wanna transfer money from my checking account to <laughs> I there were like so many hoops I had to go through, like a voice auth- authentication. It's just a terrible idea. Don't ever do that. You know, if you when you when you do sell your business have a proper place for the money to be deposited and someone who knows what they're doing to help you with it because, yeah, that's a dumb thing.
1: That's a dumb thing. You know, I'm really glad you you kind of raised life after the sale. I've done um, a bunch of interviews now and, and one of them kind of, it seems that a lot of the entrepreneurs I talk with have a bit of a I know I, I kind of a roller coaster of emotions that they go through and i right. be curious for you i mean you had that dinner where all those four or five folks seem really happy having sold their company yes i'd be curious yeah. to know did did you get that experience or was it more nuanced I mean, what was the emotional roller coaster like for you
0: Ah, uh, so um i prepared myself before it occurred um for two things. One, um, it wasn't going to change me, even though it did change my circumstances. And the second was when I sell this, it's no longer mine. And I think that's one of the things that entrepreneurs have a really hard time with sometimes is they want to sell it. They want the money, but they don't want to give up they want to feel like they still own it. And you know what? When someone pays you for something, you don't own it anymore. And if they want to do something different with it, don't be offended. That's their prerogative. You would do the same thing if you were on the other side. And so getting myself clear about those couple of things up front, John, was really, was really helpful because afterward, you know, my. Like, I worked for the company for a couple of years and I saw my job as being to help make them successful. This is, they, they own this. If they want my opinion, they'll ask it, which they often did very respectfully. Did they always follow what I thought was the best way? No, they didn't. And I could either pout about that or t- say they're stupid or, you know, get it, do all these emotional things that I see a lot of other entrepreneurs do. Or I could just say, how can I help you? in the direction you want to go how can i help you get there
1: well i think sometimes it's it's uh it's because of the structure of the deal right well, where yeah, right. an earn owner out has an earnout like- right and and the owner is is like basically fighting with management to get the resources they need to hit the earnout so in your case right. what was the structure of your employment agreement did you have an earnout or how did they structure that piece
0: so uh, there was no earnout there was an escrow that was the only thing. So, what's the
1: difference for folks?
0: Yeah. So an escrow is money that's a portion, a, a portion of the sale price that's put aside for. In my case, it was eighteen months, um, and that's there in case there's a problem with one of your warranties or representations. So when you sell a business, you you um, <clears throat> you effectively give your assurance that there's no that you're not aware of any lawsuits or penalties or unpaid taxes, unpaid taxes, or, you know, criminal charges or anything like that that could affect the business. And so, and it's a legitimate thing because you may not know about, you know, you may not know about things that could actually happen. So they set aside beside that to call that an escrow. In my case, they released half of it at nine months the other half at 18 months. An earnout is money that you get over time based on the performance of the business after the business closes. And <clears throat> there um, I've done a lot of earnouts and if you're dealing with the right people, earnouts are fine, but you don't know who the right people are. So my you know, having been through all kinds of things now, if you if you if you have a business, that more than one company would be willing to buy, it's probably not in your best interest to take an earnout or a significant earnout. On the other hand, if you have a business that no one else wants to buy, you're probably going to take an earnout. Um, but you know, escrows really can't be messed with because there's a whole structure to how they work. Earnouts are accounting functions, and they can be. Um, yeah, manipulated isn't the right word, but they can be they can be different, different interpretations of the same t- data. How's that? So,
1: Mike, why did you agree to to stay on for two years um, after the sale? What was the was there a financial incentive to do that? Was that part, part of the deal? Like it seems like a long time.
0: Uh, yeah. So you know. interestingly, I did not have an employment agreement at all. Um, so good question. Why did I choose to stay on? Because, uh, and ultimately I, the, the thing I tell myself, and I hope this is right, John, is that I wanted our team to feel like I hadn't sold the business and, and, and run out on them. You know, I told them that I thought, which I did that, you know, we'd be a platform company. There would be more opportunity. Everyone's job would be preserved. And all of that did turn out to be true. I just wanted to make sure that it was that it was true and i probably stayed around too long to to have that assurance um but um yeah i don't i don't know why i don't know why i stayed so long why leave after two years uh it was just time there was you know I got to the point where um you know one of my one of my team members had been promoted to my job i I started um, on a you know working part time, and then I was in special projects, and then all of a sudden nobody knew what to do with me, right? So it was, you know, there were no expectations any longer, John. So it was just like I don't, I don't want to. That's not for me. Um, So yeah, that's that's how that happened.
1: Well, I appreciate you sharing this story. What what do you do now? Riding around in your vet.
0: Yeah. Well, not when it's zero out like it is today, but um, yeah. So I have a new waste company that I started with a private equity partner uh, a couple of oh, okay. years ago. Uh, so I'm taking a different sort of tact at it this time. Uh, so I've spent some you know, some time doing that. Uh, I've got a podcast called How'd It Happen um, that I love doing. I've been doing that for a couple of years. Um, and I interview your, I really have conversations more than an interview because I don't ask any scripted questions except one, which is how did it happen for you? So (laughs) I, I, I just have conversations with successful people about how, you know, how they did it and what happened to them and. Lose my camera there for a second. Hang on
1: a second. That's okay. So it's called How Did It Happen? And, How and, it? Happen? And folks can get that on iTunes, I'm assuming. And yeah, Apple Podcasts
0: My website yeah. is uh dot So that's really easy. M A L A T E S T A. So feel free. To I was teasing
1: there. you before the uh, before we hit record that uh, Malatesta sounds like a motorbike, like an Italian motorbike.
0: That's the first time I heard that. It was really cool <laughs> for you to say that, John
1: mikemalatesta.com and right. you can get um had it happen on all the big podcasting yeah. channels. Yeah, Stitcher,
0: Apple Podcasts, you know, mm. Spotify, I guess wherever podcasts are, wherever you get your podcast, you can find my podcast. I hope. That's
1: awesome. Should be. That's awesome. To. So we'll look for uh, had it happen. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, Mike, thanks for joining us.
0: It was my pleasure, John. Thanks for asking me.
1: Hey, if you liked today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to -to builttosell.com slash selling, where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to -to builttosell.com slash selling. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warrillow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog.